0: Now entering Nerdist.com
1: Mission Log, A Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast, Episode 37, I, M.U.D.
0: Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. The show that logically dismantles every episode of Star Trek and inspects every gear and circuit to see what makes it tick. And if it ticks, we can kill it. I'm that guy Ken, but you can call me Ken Ray.
2: And I am John Champion. And I am talking like a robot. Because if I learned anything from this episode, it's that robots talk like this. It makes them very easy to tell apart from the humans. And if it talks like that... We can kill it. And if
0: it keeps talking like that, we might.
2: (laughs) Oh, but it's so much fun. Yeah, I know.
0: Well, you know, I usually do the goofy voice at the top of the show. You do. I know how much fun it is. And like a good starship captain, I don't want anybody having a piece of what I got. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's right oh man I, I i can tell i can tell what's going to happen in this loaded episode already for
0: bear loaded You're for bear, primed. dude You're i am ready ah uh, this is the episode turns out this is the episode i've been waiting for
2: wow i know right Wow. <laughs> it took i mud so i mud is the turning point for ken ray
0: now i mud is a a turning point for ken okay. ray or maybe it's maybe it's actually a sign saying dude you are on the right road. We'll find out. Wow. This is, seriously, wow. I'm a little worried about after this episode. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. But we, got right. a lot, we got a lot of stuff to get to before we get to after this episode. For example, we have to get through this episode. And one mm-hmm. of the signs, usually, that we're on the right path is the one that says, Star Trek trivia, 500 feet.
2: Yes, that that's the sign that tells you that the show is up and running, ready to go. So, uh, I mud, which we were talking about, uh, it is the return of Harcourt Fenton Mud. Harcourt Fenton Mud. So already, we're, we're off to a great start. Um, this is the return of the character created by Stephen Kandel, and uh, of course, it was played by Robert Carmel. Now, he is only one of two guest stars on the original series to come back and play the same character i thought that was a cool little bit of trivia he was that that popular he was that good in that role that they just had to have more of him forgive me now, for not, it, wait,
0: i'm sorry forgive me for not mm-hmm. knowing off the top of my head who was the other one
2: ah uh, we're going to get to that in another episode oh
0: you bet Okay. Go ahead.
2: <laughs> All right. So like I said, the, the story and the character credit go to Stephen Kandel, but, um, David Gerald actually, who is best known for writing the trouble with tribbles gave an interview a few years ago in which he talks about his contributions to this story. So apparently, um, and you can find the full interview, uh, I believe at uh, star Trek.com, but, uh, here's the nutshell version of that. Um, David Gerald wrote The Trouble with Trivels for very little money, and there was a little budget left over for writing. And uh, the production staff had a problem with this episode, with iMud. They got to the point where they kept fighting with the idea that they needed to get the Enterprise crew down to the planet surface by Act One, and they just could not come up with a way to do it. So they asked David Gerald, here, we'll throw you a few bucks. Can you please solve this problem? And he solved it quickly and easily, and they were very grateful. And he actually added in a few other gags into the episode. The idea of having 500 duplicate androids of a particular series, the idea of having the multiple duplicates of Stella, Mudd's wife, uh, those were all David Gerald bits. But he did not want to take the credit from Stephen Kendall. He was a young, up-and-coming writer, and he said to, uh, I believe it was Gene Kuhn, look, I I don't want to be the guy who comes in and makes a fuss and takes away a credit from another writer. Uh, So to his credit, that's how things worked out. But uh, he did actually play a big hand in the shape of this script. Um, Another interesting story about the development of this episode, We have, as I mentioned, multiple Android duplicates. And how do you do that on TV? Well, if it was the 60s and you didn't have CGI, you got twins. And then you did a lot of split-screen effects with those twins. So there's a casting story about Joe D'Agosta, who is the casting director on Star Trek, bringing twins uh, who he just found at the corner of uh, Hollywood and Vine. He said they were just hanging out at Hollywood and Vine. You can read into that whatever you like. He brought them into casting <laughs> oh, to God. meet. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. All right. He brought them in to meet uh, Bob Justman, brought them in to meet uh, Gene Kuhn, who uh, liked to play a hand in casting, but not everybody was thrilled with the idea. So they thought, OK, well, here we go. We bring in these twins and uh, they had a pet wildcat. And while they were doing the read, uh, Gene Kuhn was asked to hold the cat, which then clawed and scratched him. Uh, and destroyed his clothes and uh, caused bleeding. The twins were not that good. They eventually were uh, cast with the actresses who we see in the show, but they were given non-speaking roles uh, right at the at the very end. The story about the twins on Hollywood and Vine and this uh-huh. a- alleged wildcat uh-huh. it has got Hollywood cover-up written all over it. Uh- <laughs> Hey, I, I will tell you this, though, that uh, that was the last time that Gene Kuhn ever uh, really demanded being a part of the casting process. <laughs> <laughs> Can't say he's a blame him.
1: He's the rap scallion you love to love. John, tell us about the return of Harcourt Fenton Mud.
2: Prologue. There's a weird new guy on the ship, Norman. In fact, he's so weird, he heads right past McCoy and Spock down to engineering to rig up some kind of, well, it's complicated. He takes over the ship, and then he goes to the bridge to reveal his true identity. He's an android, and he is in control. Don't try to alter course, I'm taking you with me. And just to show you I'm serious, here's a look at my robot guts. Act 1. After a four-day journey, the Enterprise ends up in a hitherto unknown area orbiting an unknown planet. Norman has a new demand. He is to take a landing party from the Enterprise down to the planet with him. If the landing party should refuse, say goodbye to the Enterprise. He's still got it wired. Down on the planet, the landing party and Norman are in some kind of a cave system, all designed to support human life. And there's one human in particular who seems to be in charge of everything. Remember Harry Mudd? The one with all the women? Well, he's back, and he seems to have developed a bit more of a superiority complex. He's got a throne, servants galore, and he tells Kirk that he and his crew will now be permanent guests here on planet Mud. Act 2. Mud makes all the rules. It is his planet, after all, and he rules or Kirk and his crew are stuck there with no communication back to the ship. Mud has been roaming the galaxy ever since Kirk had his last run in, and he had a handy jailbreak. Finding himself on this planet with a whole lot of androids seemed like a pretty sweet deal. They are awfully subservient, but Mudd wanted to expand his horizon, so he dispatched Norman to fetch a starship. The androids do what they are told, which is why the Enterprise crew now find themselves in this position. Also, the androids won't let Mud leave. They want to study more humans, and the Enterprise is full of them. All those androids come in different looks and different clothes, though. Most of them are female, and they all have multiple functions. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. There's also a whole lot of them. Tired of Alice? Then Uh how about Barbara? Each series has hundreds of duplicates. There are over 200,000 in total. Yep, it's a pretty sweet life for old Mud. He's got all these androids to be at his beck and call, and... Just for fun, he's even got one programmed like his wife, who pops out every now and then to berate him about what a louse he is. It's all fun and games, though. Harry can talk back to the robot, which he couldn't do with the real thing. Escorted away, the androids are all too compliant and revealing a little something about themselves. They're from another galaxy, Andromeda, built by another race that's now long gone. They are all that remains of their kind. Spock tells Kirk that he assumes these androids are controlled by a central computer. He goes off to find it, and, well, he finds it. As soon as Spock asks some pretty easy questions, Norman just can't figure out how to answer. Indeed, this must be the place. Uhura learns a fun fact about the androids, too. Apparently, their bodies can last about a half a million years, and they can even be fitted with a human brain. An immortal robot body And my neural function's intact? Sign me up. Paging Paging Dr. Dr. Corby. Paging Paging Dr. Dr. Roger Roger Corby. Corby. Who should walk in now? Well, forcefully escorted in, but Scotty. Kirk says he was told to stay on board the Enterprise, but apparently the entire ship is now overrun by androids, and Scotty was the last of her crew to be beamed down to the planet. Not cool. Kirk throws mud up against a wall and puts him into a chokehold. Act three. All right. Settle down, release that chokehold. Spock spells out exactly the downside. Mud would have a starship and a crew of powerful androids roaming the galaxy. Kirk is worried about that, as well as the fact that the androids present too strong a temptation to his crew, or any human for that matter. What kind of temptation? Well, cut to Chekhov, who is trying out Mud's throne for size. He's got a couple of Alice androids at his side. Wow, a A couple of weeks ago, you know, Chekhov couldn't keep his hands off Martha Land, and Now he's graduated to two fembots. Dude does not mess around. Scotty is tempted by the technology on display. McCoy is tempted by their medical knowledge. The androids just see it as a learning opportunity. Could we all go for a little Kirk moment? I know I could right about now. This is a cage, he says. He wants his ship back, but the androids won't give it to him even though that's the only thing that would make him happy. For androids, who would only serve to bring happiness, this presents a conundrum. It's like getting that spinning wheel on your computer when it gets stuck. The androids do that too, only they stare blankly and their necklaces flash and beep. Alice is so confused, she asks Norman for help. Harry is all ready to go. His bags are packed, but oops, change of plans. The androids are going to leave Harry behind as well because, you see... Humans are flawed, and the androids would rather just have the Enterprise on their own. And while they're at it, they'll also take over the galaxy. Act 4. Time for a crew meeting. Maud is now in the same position as the landing party. By the way, where are all the rest of the crew? Spock refers back to the central control unit. There's only one Norman among all the other android series. He's the one in control, and Kirk posits that they need to... Oh gosh, here we go. Use some kind of word jujitsu to make his circuits melt. This kind of jujitsu is going to hit him right in the logic, though. They're all just going to act insane. Okay. First part of the plan McCoy knocks mud out with a spray from his hypo. Kirk recruits an Alice android to come help. He says they need to get Harry back to the ship or else Harry will die. Just when Alice has probably been convinced, Uhura jumps in to give up the game. It's a trick. Uhura would rather have a robot body, so she rats out her fellow crew. Oh, but don't worry, this was actually a trick, too. They threw off the androids by making their attempt, so now it's really time for the insanity to begin. Kirk sits atop the throne and welcomes in his landing party. First, McCoy and Scotty assume the position of musicians, but there's no music. Uhura and Chekhov dance while Kirk explains that they are celebrating their captivity. He asks the Alice bots if they are enjoying the music. Then Uhura slaps Chekov because, as Kirk explains, she likes him. See? It's getting all crazy up in here. The two Alices are stuck. It's like a blue screen of death. Spock is taking on his own Alice's. All right, your mind out of the gutter, okay? He says he loves one but he hates the other. But they're identical. It's a conundrum logic fail. They're stuck. Only 200,000 more to go. onto the control room. Mudd does a little speech-making of his own. Man needs liberty. McCoy and Scotty start doing their robot impressions. Actually, McCoy makes the case that man can only be happy by the torment and anguish of a free life. Scotty plays dead. Kirk plays speech-maker. Spock plays with Norman's mind again. They're playing a game of hot potato with an invisible explosive, and when it goes boom... Another two Alices get knocked out. All right, time to wrap it up. Kirk presents the old conundrum to Norman that everything Mudd says is a lie. Now, you know what's coming next. Mud says, I am lying. Norman's computer brain melts. Time to get off this rock. McCoy needles Spock a little bit about having to return to life among illogical humans. Kirk, facing his old foe Mudd one more time, sentences Harry to stay behind on the planet with all of these androids, uh, reprogrammed, of course, to learn and not so much take over the galaxy. But in the tradition of every game show, there is a parting gift. Harry's wife bot has been replicated 500 times, and this time she can't be shut off. Have fun with that, Harry. Oh, and the joy with which
0: they leave him to his torture.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> Yeah, they do. <laughs> uh, wait, before we get into this episode, I want to say, and I didn't know you were doing mm-hmm. this because I don't read your, you know, synopsis mm-hmm. before I hear it because it's fun to hear right. it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a thing they do on a lot of podcasts where at the end of the episode they go back and they try to find, like, whatever the best line was that anybody said and mm-hmm. they make mm-hmm. that the title. Now, ours is going to be I, Mud because that's how we do it. We associate our title with the title right. of the episode that we're doing. Here's a look at my robot guts needs to be a line for something. If if we did that, that would be the title of this episode, I think. Now, I you know, we haven't heard the rest of it, so maybe there's a funnier line coming, but I doubt it.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, well, thank you for that. Thank you because seriously, if you were a robot Ken and you were going to intimidate somebody, you don't need to throw people around a room, you don't need to pull a weapon, you just go, "Look, robot guts. Here's a I look win. at my
0: robot guts." Exactly. You know, I know I say that it, everything should be a t-shirt, yeah. but seriously,
2: <laughs> i like that as a end t-shirt the, end of discussion
0: yeah and you're right <laughs> while you don't need to throw somebody around to impress everybody thank god montgomery scott was there to be thrown around
2: yeah that's a good thing you know he's the only one who <laughs> but now kirk, kirk gets stopped <laughs> as he's walking up the bridge norman just kind of yeah. grabs him but it, it takes one of the female bots to uh push around scotty a little
0: no, 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 it was Norman. Norman actually, like, took him and threw him against the wall as soon as he went into engineering. Oh, oh.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, you're, you're right about that. But I was yeah. thinking about the moment where they bring Scotty down to the planet. Oh, and yeah. And then one of the Alices just pushes Scotty. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, Scotty. no, no. Norman yeah. just, like, shoves Scotty against a wall and then throws him over yeah. the console. Nothing kinky.
2: Pretty great. <laughs> Pretty great. Yeah. Pretty great. Uh, and by the way, speaking of Norman getting on the Enterprise. Yeah. Um, I, I'm thinking that security measures are pretty relaxed in the future. Well, you know, I
0: mean, and so's yeah. well, yeah, getting into Starfleet is apparently not that difficult either. Yeah. I mean, one assumes that he, like, came with, you know, papers, that he was transferred by somebody. He only got there three days ago, right? Yeah. And yeah. yet, yeah, just, you know, Spock sees nothing weird about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, right. What? He's a, I, guy. He's a guy. He's a guy in Starfleet. Get over it.
2: Yeah. The Enterprise would just take anybody. It is like, see a guy at the side of the road, sure, here, put on this blue shirt. You're part of the crew now.
0: Exactly. You know, they sell those at a lot of hotels, and they uh, and, uh, the yeah. guys, like, set up tables and sell those, I know. Right, It's, right. it's a little scary. Uh, one does also wonder why you need 400 people to run the Enterprise. Now, let's assume that some of those people are actually researching things like that. I'm still sure. not sure we need yeah. 400 because, I mean, most you get down on a planet at one time is maybe 10, and yeah. so then you would think, okay, well, then the other 390 must be doing a lot. But then one Android can come in and just, you know, flip these switches and then go over here and flip these switches after only three days there. Uh, and well, basically yeah, it can take over the enterprise.
2: And, and Norman would only have to have rewired so much. You would think that a guy like Scotty could go in and unwire that yeah. in, in, in under four days. One yeah, right.
0: right, because once Norman shuts himself down for the four-day trip – yeah. Yeah, that, that does give you four days to, you know, maybe try to figure out what happened as opposed to just, you know, sitting around for four days. And yet everyone still seems surprised to see him on the bridge.
2: I, yeah, right. <laughs> did,
0: right. I, I wondered yeah. why they didn't get like some of those things, you know, that they used to keep Nomad from falling and hurting the floor.
2: Um, oh, yeah, yeah, they should have more of those.
0: Just yeah. just maybe to move Norman into the corner. I'm not saying, you know, let's jettison, <laughs> jettison him out into space because that will, of course, lead to the Enterprise being blown up. Right. But maybe we could get him out of the doorway.
2: Yeah, I agree with just, that. Just a thought. I agree with that. Yeah. Hey, you remember way back when uh, we were having discussion about the death penalty in the future? And, yes. And uh, we realized that, uh, okay, going to Talos IV, that uh, is a, uh, a, a Federation death penalty. Yes.
0: Okay. Uh, and, and killing a starship captain may or may not be.
2: <laughs> right. I, I, I still maintain not. But I still I maintain the argument. so. But yeah, either way. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Um, but now, apparently, if you do anything remotely criminal yes. on Deneb 5, yeah. uh, you get the death penalty. Uh, it, what, what was it uh, years and years and years ago? Remember the, the kid who had the severe punishment uh, because he was chewing gum in Singapore? Yeah. That's how I pictured Deneb 5. It was a public caning. Yeah. Well, yeah. I actually wondered about that because
0: it was fraud that got you so many different ways to die. We don't know what mm-hmm. else. It is possible that it is only fraud that gets you the death penalty on <laughs> right. Deneb 5. Right. We don't know. But either way,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. really, if you go to Deneb 5, don't, don't commit fraud. No. Because you will have yeah. your choice of ways to die, uh, but you will die mm-hmm. if you're Very caught. true. Yeah. Still didn't Did explain, find- by the way, how he got out of jail. He's like, oh, I started selling selling, uh, fake patents that I didn't have the rights to sell. No. And still, how did you get out of jail?
2: (laughs) Did you not hear the patent part? Well, I did. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, Did you find it interesting that the androids say to our landing party that uh, the androids were much more common in their world than they are for ours. And I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting projection about the future to say that in the 23rd century, um, we just don't have robots among us because I'm already thinking about, you know, every now and then somebody will send you the uh, uh, like the creepy YouTube video from Japan that'll be the incredibly lifelike robot. I, I, I think, you know, we're we're that's right around the corner from us. You know, I don't know if they'll be walking down the street and every other being will be a robot, but I, I, I would think that robots would be more common in a couple of hundred years.
0: Yeah, I would think so, and yet that is something we're going to stick with on um, Star Trek throughout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you've got, you've got so. data, you've got lore, you've got whatever that spare data was that they found in um, yeah. whatever that Before. movie was, Nemesis. Yep, yep. I mean, and that's pretty. you're pretty much done at that point. Otherwise, you've got, like, you know... Borg, but yeah, not a lot of robots. Yeah. And maybe we would have more if they hadn't killed Dr. Roger Corby. <laughs>
2: <laughs> maybe. Maybe. It goes um, back to that. But who knows? Spock figures out right away that all of those androids must be controlled from a central place. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> you know <laughs> um, uh, why? It, like you said, D- data's got two brothers, and they don't need to be controlled in a central place. It seems like if you're building an Android, you'd want them to have a, a good level of autonomy. And um, it seems like you would, but
0: that really wouldn't work for the story, would it? I mean, no. You know, two hundred thousand. If you got to like try to outwit every one of them,
2: that, that's a lot of illogic that has to be thrown around. But speaking of throwing around illogic. I really have to hand it to the crew here, because as I mentioned in the story, you know we beam down all four hundred members of the crew, but we never see them. We we just see our our main cast, and they're the ones who have to take on all the androids with their insane dance and and all this stuff. Um, but they're really good at it. So they clearly they had rehearsal time to do this, you know. And, and in the context. In the context of the story, they're all really good actors. Yeah, you
0: know? yeah. They're not. They're not really great at the pantomime, though. Uh, no. When they're when they're like you know molding the uh, fake explosive, <laughs> right? That was right. that was painfully bad pantomime. I will say. I mean, and I know you're kidding about the fact that you know there's no way that these guys should actually be good about at this. Yeah. I, I I thought the moments of levity in that were torturous. But they were good, if that Mm -hmm. makes any sense. I mean, I actually do think that the actors who played those characters carried off those moments okay. I I hated those moments.
2: Well, I I like the idea that, you know, they make fun of their own phaser sound effect. Yes. You know, moments like that I I thought were really good. But I I think uh, tortuous but fun is probably a great description for our show and many other things in life.
1: This episode sounds like 10 pounds of weird in a five-pound bag. Curious to hear what the guys pull out of it.
2: So, Ken, before we get deeply into our topical discussion, Mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to throw out one thing about uh, the cage. And I don't mean specifically the cage, but I do because Kirk says we're in a cage. In yeah. this episode. And um, yeah, you know, similar idea, but not the same. Um, we, we don't like the idea of uh, being told what our limits are, uh, the, the extent of our freedoms. Pike had it obviously a little bit differently. But here we've got uh, Kirk and crew, now the entire crew of the Enterprise, in the the gilded cage. The cage nonetheless. You know, it's weird there's actually, there's more reality to
0: what's happening on this planet of the Andromedan androids than there was in something like Shore Leave or something like um, or something like The Cage. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I had a moment of wondering, well, why they didn't stay. Uh-huh. I mean, the uh, the one person who's not going to want to stay is Kirk, because what Kirk wants to be is the captain of a starship, right? Right. What Scotty right. wants to be, though, is an engineer and suddenly, boom, he's got this fantastic workspace like he's never even dreamed of before. What What Bones wants is to be able to uh, practice medicine and, and apparently learn. I mean, he'll spill a little acid. I mean, he's working on stuff besides, you know, just mending uh, broken bones.
2: And, and it's funny because just like in Shore Leave when uh, dead McCoy is brought back and he, he comes out and he says, boy, you wouldn't believe the medical technology they have down yeah. there. Where I just left 10 feet away, but I apparently I'm not going back yeah, <laughs> to yeah. learn any of it. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, apparently yeah. what Uhuru wants is to sit and look pretty for 500,000 years. I mean, Don't we all. And, and, yeah. and, and, and I mean, the weird thing is, I mean, it is a cage in that it's a cage, as as Kirk says. At the same time, it's different because everything that happens here is real.
2: Yeah, it, it's all technology. Yeah, well, and, and it's not... You know, I mean, it is a physical technology that right, they right, can right. use and, and eventually understand as opposed to the Tolosians who are creating illusion right. and manipulating through that illusion. So, yeah, th- there's definitely a distinction, but but I do think there's a little bit of a similarity there, at least enough worth mentioning right at the top. Yeah. You what know? else you got? Um, well, what we also have here is um, a, you know a big story of temptation, which I, I think is kind of cool. We do it But then we sort of get it out of the way pretty quickly. You know, they played up for Uhura, Scotty, Bones, and Chekhov. And then Kirk is finally the one who has to come in and say, Hey, hey, remember, we have duties. And I I think it works pretty nicely when Uhura has her moment of uh, revealing the trick uh, with the unconscious mud. I I really like that because it had been a long time since I had seen this episode, and I forgot that that was kind of the moment where we start to turn things around and uh, and use logic against the uh, the androids, so that moment worked like I said within the context of the episode they 're all very good actors, um, but they kind of get over their temptation very quickly
0: yes, they do i, I actually I, I, as much as it hinged on Uhura. I didn't yeah. buy it. I mean, that kind of that was a little bit of a letdown. I don't think I would. Well, yeah, you might be tempted to go so far as to call it one of the sexist things. But
2: it well, was, but, but it was disappointing
0: that that, you know, that that was even a temptation for her for a moment.
2: Yeah, well, but I mean, here's the thing, no matter who it is. Yeah. OK, we give it to Uhura. Um, but no matter who it is, again, if we just look at this purely as a technological thing, uh, oh, by the way, we can put your brain intact into this vessel that will last for a half a million years. Yeah. That's that's not only is it pretty tempting, I, I would say it's definitely worth studying. It's definitely worth a look. You would because think... This might be, yeah, <laughs> because would, this is something that might benefit us down the road.
0: You would think so. Although I did have a couple of issues with that as well, which I guess this might go in the last segment, but it can also go in this one. Um, so they can mm-hmm. put a human brain, into a robot body, but they don't understand unhappiness. Right. They have, in fact, not come across humans uh, before, just other humanoids. So I'm assuming then, okay, well, since those robots look so much like humans, then I guess the Andromedans were also pretty similar to humans. So why didn't they take the Andromedans' brains and put those into robot bodies? Why that is a really good... Question. Yeah, it's a few issues, yeah. but you know, yeah, whatever. yeah. It's again, it's not, it's not a huge, um,
2: it's not something they consider for more than a couple of minutes. Right, All right, right. Um, and speaking of androids, can we can we just talk about Stella for a moment? <laughs> <laughs> because you mentioned the the sexist possibility here of, of Uhura's temptation, um, and whether that is or isn't, you know, I, I think it, it is a temptation nonetheless. But but then you introduce this character. Stella. And she's this overblown stereotype. Like, I I mean, I I picture this in a cartoon book at a men's club in the 50s, you know, like the the nagging shrew. And she's just purely there for comic relief. Like, oh, women. Am I right? Yeah. The wife, Um, the wife as battle
0: axe is what I actually have in my uh, in my notes, you know, just ha ha ha. Wives suck. Oh, being married is dumb. See also Gladys Kravitz from Bewitched and Harriet Olson from Little House on the Prairie. And others that I'm sure I can't think of right this second. And
2: and if it hadn't been done already a million times, and and if it weren't already this just bad stereotype, I I might be able to swallow it and like the contrast against uh, Mudd, that, that there are other people in his life who actually put him in its place, because that might inform something about the character. But maybe it's just watching this through 21st century eyes. You can't help but go... Okay, this is a terrible, terrible stereotype. (laughs) Okay, this is a
0: character worth revisiting. I know everybody loves the fact that, you know, Khan got a movie. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. could write some seriously warped up stuff with Harry Mudd. You you could actually even do like that sort of the whole biography of Harry Mudd kind of thing, which probably somebody's done either in fan fiction or in novels that I don't know about. So maybe I'm, yeah, I'm I'm rediscovering the wheel.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Coming up (laughs) next... Fire, good or bad. (laughs) But yeah, the character is pretty fascinating. And we don't, you know, you mentioned Khan. We've seen characters like this who have kind of a a singular drive, an obsessive side, whatever. But Harry Mudd is just sort of a a criminal from another era. And and he's a, a gadfly and he's all these other things. That as a character, like you said, are really ripe for exploration. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cool that we get him back. There are other characters that would be nice to have back in uh, in Star Trek. Um, but yeah, you know, e- e- even if uh, maybe this isn't your favorite treatment, treatment because of the comedy, uh, as you mentioned before, the character is still pretty fascinating.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you want to do like a little pop psychology, I mean, you say, oh, it's interesting to think that there were other things that went into his life that made him sort of the rogue or rapscallion that he became, the criminal that he became. Mm -hmm. And in this episode, they make it his wife. Oh, his wife, she's so terrible. And that's why he runs away and does all this stuff. Hey, guess what? He married her. Right. Right, He got down theoretically on one knee and, you know, asked her, although, you know, it's 23rd century. Maybe she asked him, whatever the case, he chose theoretically to spend the rest of his life with that person and yep. then, uh, you know, spends time running away. So
2: what what went into that decision making?
0: Yeah. Now and, I want somebody to do like a like a like a real breakdown of Harry Mudd.
2: And apparently you can get the death penalty for fraud and Five, but you can't get a divorce. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you can,
0: but, you know. There, there may be some angle for him still being married. Sure. <sighs> All right. Are you ready?
2: I'm ready. I don't know
0: how to, I don't even know how to get into this. Uh, so I, I think we so, just did. So I, I watched this episode and hated it immediately. Oh yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. And as happens with some episodes, I, you know, I'm conscious of the fact that we have to go back. I actually got to the point of, of wondering if we shouldn't just pick and choose episodes. But I'll, but I'll mm. tell you why I, I think we don't pick and choose episodes. You wouldn't get stuff like what's about to happen.
2: <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> All oh, right. no. I find okay. it very
0: interesting that being freed of labor is what allowed the Andromedans to evolve a perfect social order. That is what, that is what Norman says happened. It is also mm. not surprising that power represented here by Captain Kirk would not be into that idea for even a moment.
2: Oh, no, uh, not, not with everything we've seen with Kirk. So far. Right. Yeah. All right. So
0: Norman, which is basically the central processing unit of all the Andromedan androids, is developing a sense of self. This mm-hmm. unit, he says, myself. And he pauses before he says myself. This is a moment. And it's understated, but it is played as a moment. There is definitely a nod to the fact that he's kind of he's kind of an emerging consciousness at that point. Mm-hmm. Remember how all the things in Operation Annihilate were, you know, parts of one big brain or, you know, parts of a distributed network? Yeah. Okay. These are two, except here's one to whom they can talk. And if they can talk to it, they can kill it.
2: (laughs) Or they could reason with it or they could learn from it. Dude,
0: there is no time for that
2: crap. Come on.
0: No. (laughs) Because they might want to do something bad to the people of the Enterprise. And by bad, I mean leave them on a planet where their every need will be taken care of. Yes, I understand. They're going to take over the galaxy, but, you know, bah, da da da
2: Okay, we'll take over the galaxy and leave you stranded on a planet. I, I think objectively <laughs> that's bad. Okay. I'm just going to say that that is objectively bad.
0: Okay, but again, so our only option at that point is to kill it. There is There is a sense of self emerging in Norman, so we could actually talk to him, as you point out, uh, and as does not occur to Kirk. Now, maybe if Norman had you know, been shooting at Kirk, then he would be interested in talking because well, that tends to be the way it goes. The only yeah, time Kirk the- is actually interested in reasoning with an opponent is when that opponent is about to kill him.
2: But I, you know what? Uh, okay, given – I understand that it's a little bit different from uh, – th- there's a difference between having a, say, a gun pulled on you and saying, I'm going to kill you, or saying, I'm going to leave you stranded here and, uh, and steal your ship. But those are both bad things. Those are both
0: uh, bad uh, things, yes. But and, why not talk to Norman about why he might not want to do that?
2: Well, they they tried. I mean, they made his head explode. But, um, <laughs> I don't think that you know, counts as trying to talk to him. But but you still have 200,000 other androids left, and by the time they leave, those androids are back up and running again. Yeah, how did that happen, by the way?
0: Because they don't have a CPU anymore. You notice that uh, Norman was not there, right?
2: No, no, Norman wasn't there, but the control panel was still there. Yeah, so, who, who's doing know, that now, though? Uh, uh, Norman right. 2... Uh, no. we don't know there, there is no we do we
0: already talked about that
2: yeah well but but we we know that um somebody scotty spock whomever other androids they were able, they were able to go back in and reprogram or at least reactivate them enough uh, right. and at least take out the part that says we're going to leave you stranded here and steal your ship moving on okay <laughs>
0: Norman says we cannot allow a race as greedy and corruptible as yours to roam the galaxy. So we will serve you and control you. I found this idea actually very fascinating. Very interesting idea. And um, one over which I found myself puzzling recently. Um, We hold in disdain the idea of bread and circuses, not the upcoming Star Trek episode, which we're not discussing today. But the idea that if you keep people fed and give them enough distractions, you as the person or party in power can pretty much do what you want. Mm Mm-hmm. And I and I I can't help wondering lately um, how much of that happens that we don't realize is happening, it, like in our mm. lives today, and you know whatever time you happen to be listening. Uh, Norman mm-hmm. plans to take over the galaxy by serving everyone. Um, I don't know. <laughs> 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 His plan is to protect humanoids by tending to their every need. He plans to prey on their self-serving natures and you know neuter them that way and and. I'm not saying I want robots to take over and take care of everything, but I'm not sure that we're not doing this already, and I'm not sure why what he's proposing is necessarily bad.
2: Ken, I I worry when you say something like, I'm not saying that it wouldn't be a bad thing for robots to take over the world, because immediately what I think is that this is not a bad thing in your eyes. Okay, here's the thing.
0: I think we need to decide what it is that we are trying to do. And mm-hmm. I mean all of us. I don't mean you and me. I mean all of us. My assumption is that what we want is to be happy. And that we explore and that we invent and that we create to, to, to sort of reach self-actualization in a way. Now, the problem that we tend to get into in these conversations, see also this side of paradise and the apple, as we assume, and forgive me, mm-hmm. John, by we, I mean you, <laughs> we assume in a very puritanical way, that it is oh, the act, of, well, that it is the act <laughs> of working toward the goal that should be the goal, and that's so old west to me that it's nuts. Um, it's also the world in which we live, but only because it's the world in which we live. I mean, I think if we don't decide that what we want is to be happy, if we decide, <sighs> this is going to sound crazy, and I hate that it keeps coming back to this side of paradise, but it honestly broke my heart to hear everybody say. Happiness is for saps, which is really what that felt like to me. And the same thing in the apple. Happiness is for saps. We got an email from somebody who said, who basically started arguing about real as opposed to not real. And this sort of goes back to the cage versus um, i mud. What was happening in the cage wasn't real. What was happening on shore leave was physically real, but it wasn't real. But they can actually... What Norman says happened was that the Andromedans built these robots and from that they were able to, you know, leave off all the all the, you know, slogging about and actually attain sort of a perfect social order. And it was not that perfect social order that killed them the way it killed the Telosians. What killed them was their star exploded. Yeah. So the idea yeah, is, is once yeah. they got rid of, you know, all the stuff that they had to muck about with, they were actually in a much better place as a society. Now <laughs> What it actually got me thinking about, as I mentioned earlier, was self-actualization. This is from something called simplypsychology.org. I went to simplypsychology.org because it gave me the best sort of, you know, quick summation. I read a few things and tried to decide which one was going to be the best to present. It's, Mm -hmm. um, okay, so Maslow's, Maslow, uh, Abraham Maslow presented a hierarchy of needs model, uh, which can be divided into basic or deficiency needs. Uh, Psychological uh, needs, those are like, you know, safety, love, and esteem. Uh, And growth needs, uh, cognitive aesthetics and self-actualization. Now, according to his argument, one must satisfy the lower level basic needs before progressing on to meet the higher level growth needs. Um, Once these needs have been reasonably satisfied, one may be able to reach the highest level called self-actualization. Every person is capable and has the desire to move up the hierarchy toward a level of self-actualization. Unfortunately, progress is often disrupted by failure to meet lower level needs Life experiences, including divorce and loss of job, may cause an individual to fluctuate between levels of the hierarchy. Um, Maslow noted that only one in a hundred people become fully self-actualized because their society rewards motivation primarily based on esteem, love, and other social needs. Say like being a starship captain. Like, like being in command of 400 people. There is a reason that Kirk <laughs> has a problem when he finds you know places where everybody can be happy. Because when he finds places where everybody can be happy, he can't be happy because his self-actualization is being in command of a starship, is being in command of those people, is making decisions for the people who are under his command. And then if he happens to come across a society that he doesn't like the way it's running, well, he'll make those decisions for them, too.
2: (laughs) Well, he does that. Yes, quite a bit.
0: So I yeah. guess, I guess the, I, I'm still stuck on the problem that it seemed to me that we have had several times now. When we come across something that seems utopian, everybody wants to say, no, no, no. You can't have utopia. You have to work. You only get a moment of happiness. And then the rest of it is working towards that moment of happiness. We're sort of – we all of us, not all of us, but a lot of us, there have been some people mm-hmm. who have written to say, hey, you know what? He might be Right. A lot of us seem to be sort of caught up in the idea that we have to work towards being happy. That we have to work towards our goal. But the problem is we seem to have replaced our goal with working towards our goal. As Mm -hmm. I said at the beginning of this, whatever this is, my assumption is that we're working towards these things so we can be happy. But everybody that we've heard from about this stuff says... It's the working towards happiness that is actually the reward.
2: Well, okay. Um, it, it, here's the thing, and it, this is probably going to be a very simplistic answer to what you have here, which is uh, tremendously well-researched and, and thought out. I, I do think that uh, there are a couple of differences here with uh, this side of paradise and the apple. You know, Again, we, we go back to the apple, the big, big problem with the apple for me and for you, is that uh, anthropologically what Kirk does is totally indefensible. We Mm -hmm. know nothing about those people, and he just completely changes the way that they have been able to survive. We have no idea what's in store for them after the fact. This side of paradise is a little bit different because you're dealing with humans. You're dealing with humans who were on a mission, who had this thing imposed upon them, And um, I I definitely defend you with the idea that um, given a choice, which is what we are not presented with, um, those people could have been happy and been perfectly happy to stay where they were. Mm -hmm. Um, Kirk's decision didn't necessarily need to affect them. It really only needed to affect his crew, the people that he is responsible for. We went back to that planet. We thought we were going to find corpses. I think here's the word that I keep getting stuck on, and that is happy. Because there is a case to be made to say that, um, say, the the settlers in the side of paradise were happy. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it was an induced happiness. It was a happiness induced without consent, blah, 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 all these other kind of conditional things around that. But then we keep stopping at the idea of happy. And I think the problem that the androids represent here in iMUD has less to do with happiness and more to do with, well, let's get back to that self-actualization and the level of freedom to do that. You know, being told, well, you can self-actualize because your basic needs will be met, but those basic needs do not include the freedom to go where you want to go, um, the, the the freedom to have your starship, which is what you have trained to do all your life, um, I, I think that is a big, big part of it. And, and I would rather replace happiness with the idea of self-determination, self-actualization, et cetera, et cetera. Because a- a- happiness, I think, is a very difficult thing to define. It, it is individual. Um, it, it is kind of fleeting, I, I still maintain the idea that happiness is not a thing that you get to and then you are done. What Star Trek is constantly doing and what Kirk is constantly arguing is that the, the journey is important. That when we have obstacles, we try to overcome them. And when you take away all of that, then you stop growing.
0: Do you think, though, that Star Trek is saying that about every individual on the planet? Or do you think they're saying that about humanity? Do you think it's saying that about intelligence? Because here's the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very cool that we say everybody's free. Mm-hmm. But then you have somebody like Maslow come along and say, yeah, one in a 100 people are actually going to yeah, attain Uh, Self-actualization. And and maybe don't say happy. Maybe say self-actualization. Most people, Mm -hmm. I don't think, think that putting food on the table is self-actualization. Most people Mm -hmm. don't think, you know, just being able to pay the bills and get by is self-actualization. And yet that tends to be where... A lot of people live and where a lot of people stay to the point that a lot of people don't even wonder if they're happy or, you know, even have time to think if they're self-actualized or, you know, even have a concept of that because what they're thinking start to finish is make the bills. Do you see yeah. what I'm
2: saying? I, I absolutely see what you're saying. And I, and I think here's the the really interesting part of it. Is that okay? We are here. We are doing this podcast about a science fiction show written in the 60s. Uh, Maslow wrote this in the 50s, right? And we are still not at a place where most people can achieve that kind of self actualization. There are so many obstacles in the way for okay. that to happen. And here's what well, I'm uh, saying
0: no, here's what I'm saying. I'm going to stop you right there. Okay. What I'm saying is the biggest one of those is in our own heads. I'm not saying that we can all decide tomorrow that everything's going to be better. But the Mm -hmm. amount of like blowback that that I received from you and from (laughs) our guests and from people who have written in this idea that you only get a moment of that and that the real joy isn't working towards that, because otherwise, well, if you've got it all the time, then you don't really you know, then you don't really feel it. That to me is the Puritans. That to me is is the idea that has been, you know, given to us. Maybe one of the only things that has been given to us freely our whole lives is the idea that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I'm not saying I don't want to work. I'm just saying we're constantly told that we have to keep working towards what we want. Hey, you work 50 weeks a year and you get two weeks of vacation. Hey, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Hey, there's no such thing as happiness as a state. There's happiness as a moment. And if we replace happiness with self-actualization, of course we're never going to get there because in our own minds we think in terms of oh I got to you know if I can just do this then I'll get to this place and that'll get me closer to this and then that'll get me closer to this. We're not I don't think we have it in our heads that we can actually achieve a state of self-actualization most of us.
2: Well, but, but what I was going to say is this. I mean, I, I let's move it back to star trek in particular okay because i i think the future that's being presented here is that in another 200 300 years as humanity progresses a, as we keep slogging it out mm-hmm. um we are starting to remove those roadblocks that prevents you know that allows as maslow points out only one in a hundred people to actually become self-actualized um that is the future that Star Trek is presenting it 's less so about spaceships and more so about the idea that people can achieve what they want to achieve. The enterprise is full of people who have worked through that meritocracy to achieve something great um, of course it's you know it, it has a hierarchy you 've got Captain Kirk in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very different situation from what we see all day, every day, and kind of our, our mundane lives. Certainly in the, you know, 50s and 60s, area, the the era that this show has developed, certainly different from what we have now. But we're I, I think that Star Trek is presenting this idea that as you get past, if we can eliminate hunger, if we can eliminate Uh, wars on Earth, we can eliminate all of these things, then we get to push humanity even a step further, just says that now we can let people become what they want to be. And it's not saying specifically there is an end goal, but we get to keep pushing toward that.
0: What's interesting is you've actually used um, two terms interchangeably that I was going to wonder if I'm being nitpicky about and now Mm -hmm. whether whether I am or not, I'm going to go ahead and do it. You mm-hmm. said one time that uh, we are creating a future that allows us to achieve what we want to achieve, and then you mm-hmm. said a second time, th- or the other time, that we are creating a future that allows us to be what we want to be. Mm-hmm. There's a difference in, in those two terms. One is the pure, and the other uh, is the uh, Buddhist.
2: Uh, or,
0: or, or, you know, the other is the, I don't know, uh, enlightened or self-actualized or whatever you want to call it. Sure. So which one is Star Trek actually moving us towards? I would honestly maybe argue that the original series is moving us towards the one where we can achieve what we want to achieve and the um, next generation maybe is the one where we can be what we want to be.
2: I, I think that would probably be a very accurate assessment. I, I am kind of using those loosely, but I like your delineation of, of what those are and how those apply to the, to the different series. I like sure. my delineation too.
1: As we leave Harry Mudd and his 500 robo-wives behind, we're left to wonder whether this was an episode worth revisiting.
0: Well, John has that thing that he does at the beginning of the show, and I usually do the thing at the end of the show, the part where we ask each other uh, about the messages, morals, and meanings of a particular episode, and whether that episode stands the test of time. John, does this production hold up in your opinion? I, Mud, I ask you...
2: <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, I, John, will uh, start out by... I'll I'll give a little preface here. Star Trek, the original series, is an anthology show. Mm -hmm. One one episode does not necessarily affect the other. And so it's rare enough that you would have a character come back. Um, And because of the anthology format, you allow yourself to do things. Here's the comedy episode. Here's the halloween episode Mm -hmm. um we get the moral episodes we get the action episodes and um this one unfortunately kind of sticks out because it is played so heavily for comedy um you have the the winning uh uh formulas here though of robert carmel as mud he's terrific Mm -hmm. Um, you get uh, you get a pretty cool set even though you know it's kind of right out of the uh, the the star trek uh, purple lit cave walls (laughs) kind of look that we've seen before Um, you get some good acting even though it's silly Uh, I think that they play it pretty well but it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb I, I can't remember if it was you or Rod who said that it felt like a Gilligan 's Island, or a um, oh I, you know pick pick a show from that period, the monkeys, whatever yeah uh, and it feels like Star Trek at that point is just throwing whatever it can at the wall and and seeing what sticks, and we 're kind of lucky that we get a great character like mud and we get some great moments out of our regular actors. Um, I really don't think it holds up as a production, particularly not when compared to the other episodes of Star Trek. There yeah. are things that I like, but overall, I have to say no. How about you? No, I thought this episode was painful.
0: <laughs> I didn't like it. I'm, and I do, I'm, I'm sort of sad that this is what happened to Harry Mudd because he was actually a smarter, mm-hmm. more conniving character in Mudd's Women and 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 a bit more yeah well he had a bit more depth i'm sorry he actually had a lot more depth in mud's women so yeah on the one hand it's kind of neat to see the character back but then you just kind of want to go back and watch mud's women again as far as like a uh a a a fully realized uh character i'd say yeah i know i found a lot to pull out of the episode or at least i think i did
2: i don't know um (laughs) is there a message to it and if there is does it hold up well, you know that's what's so interesting about this is that I, I really went into it thinking, okay, well, he, here's the comedy episode. We get the patented Kirk, well, not the big speech, but we get little nuggets of it, and then it gets echoed by the other members of the landing party. Um, and I, I, I think all of that is, well, it, does it really lead up to a single message, a single moral? Well, the intention here maybe to say what we've kind of seen before. Human beings have an innate need for freedom, for self-actualization, and we don't want to be ruled by robots. Um, So is that the intended message? Probably so. Does that message hold up? Well, um, until we have robot overlords, we'll have to see how that plays out. I think the messages that you found here are much more interesting to debate. And I'm actually, I'm kind of shocked that we were able to, really squeeze something out of what seemed at first like this is going to be a throwaway.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that those were messages that were actually here. They were just sort of points of they were points that interested me. I mean, we've now there is so much in this episode that's been done before. I I seriously I wanted to stop watching when I realized he's going to do he's going to add dance this time, but it's still going to be word jujitsu. How many times have we done that now? I mean that. that so few. that that kind A of few. bothered me. There's so much in this episode that's been done before, including just the assumption that you know when somebody says, "Oh no, we want to work for it." Okay, well, yeah, we do want to work for it because that's what we always heard. Yes. So you're right. I mean, there's there's. I mean, this would be an easy episode to completely ignore. Um, and honestly, if you and I weren't doing this show, this mm-hmm. would be an episode that I would completely ignore. But mm. then you know, having been basically tasked with going back and you know and watching it. Um, right. and, and trying to find something in it, um, I'm sadly, I'm just a little horrified by what I find. But, you know, <laughs> I, I like to call those days Tuesday or, or days that end in Y, you know, <laughs> right. right? tends to happen. See also the apple and this side of paradise.
2: Well, uh, what did you think, dear listeners? Well, we would love for you to tell us. You can tell us at Facebook. You can leave a message for us on Skype. And you can tell us at Twitter. We're reachable in all three of those places at the handle Mission Log Pod. You can call us, 323-522-5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. We also have a fantastic home on the internet, missionlogpodcast.com. Remember, we may use your comments in an upcoming episode. Next week, Metamorphosis
0: join us, won't you?
1: Some of the music for the Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. After this, I may need to go back and watch Mud's Women again. Just to clear my circuits. And transmission. Now leaving nerdist.com